my name's Steve. I'm the pastoral assistant here. Um, I, I absolutely love singing with you guys and hearing you all sing, and I'm glad that you're here. Um, if I haven't met you yet, I would love to do so, and please do stick around for our picnic afterwards. Um, this morning, we're going to continue in our series um, called The Liberty of Obedience, and what we're finding is that as we walk through each of the Ten Commandments, we're seeing that not only do they run a lot deeper than we normally would think, but usually uh, when we think about authority, we think about being trapped a little bit. And what we're finding is that the authority of Jesus is actually very, very freeing. And this morning we're going to be looking at what seems to be one of the clearest cut of all of the Ten Commandments. Seems to be. Seems to be. So let me read our passage for us and, and pray for us and we'll get started. And uh, I memorized this one. All right? This is the Old Testament reading. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 5. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, another week has gone by, and once again, we are in need of the words of life. We live in a world that is filled with death and violence. And we need your peace. We need to understand how to be peacemakers in the way that you have laid out for us. I ask this morning that you would move me aside, that we would actually hear your voice speaking to our hearts, reminding us of the beauty of your gospel, of the life that is found there, and the freedom that is found in that life. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. On September 11, 2001, much of the world was in sorrow and shock over the destruction of the World Trade Center. And there were a few small terrorist groups that were celebrating these attacks, but for Americans, and especially for New Yorkers, they were, we were plunged into this, into this sea of confusion and absolute sadness that was very, very unsettling. And nearly a decade later, the man held responsible for that destruction was shot and killed by the U.S. military. And the reaction to this news in America was, was almost schizophrenic. I don't know if you were reading any op-ed pieces during this time, but everyone was sort of asking these questions. Should we feel happy or elated? Or, or shouldn't we have more of a sense of closure than we do Many of the, the families of 9-11 victims have said that they really haven't felt that much closure by the death of this one man. Others, though, at, in, in various communities throughout the United States, entered into almost euphoric celebration and, and partying over the death of our enemy. These celebrations would, would later be condemned or excused, depending on what editorial you were reading. Suffice it to say, our world is filled with violence. Just this last week, a man enacted unbelievable violence on young people in the very peaceful nation of Norway. There's violent conflict in Syria, Libya, South Sudan, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. And even just here in our own country, conservative estimates put the, murder, the daily murder rate at 30, just in the United States. As I said, this command seems like it couldn't be any clearer than it is. I mean, in Hebrew, it's only two words. It's just negation and kill. That's it. Just don't do it, right? 
And given our own ambivalence regarding killing, even, even killing that seems well-deserved, I, I think we might have to dig just a little bit deeper than that. Plus, the food for the picnic won't be ready for a while. So let's think a little bit harder together, shall we? I think part of the reason um, that this command is, is a lot trickier than we think is because so often what we want it to mean actually renders it meaningless. So when we read this command, you shall not murder or you shall not kill, we immediately think you shouldn't kill in the ways that you're not supposed to kill. Okay? That's what's known as a tautology. It's a meaningless statement. To say you're not supposed to do what you're not supposed to do means you haven't said anything. Okay? That's not a command. It's a reminder. Okay? So, so often what we want it to mean renders it meaningless. So rather than assume that we know exactly the kind of killing that this command is talking about, I'd like us to just force ourselves to think about it from the larger trajectory of the biblical narrative. That is to say, once again, we're going to concern ourselves with the question, how did Jesus understand this command? Does it, does it do more than just prohibit a very narrow band of killing? And I think what we're going to find, once again, is that our desires for self-justification Often, they often try to drive our understanding of this command. They try to limit its meaning so that all of us can sit here and think, okay, it's murder week. I, I think I'm fine, right? I'm off the hook for this week. I fulfilled this one perfectly. But the reality is, when we really let this command speak to us, we've all fallen far short. So as we think about what this command means Christianly, I'd like to look at three ideas. The God of life, the death of God, and give or take. First of all, the God of life. It's important to remember as we continue through this series that these commands are not just disjointed rules that happen to be smashed together and ten was a nice number, so we decided to just call it the Ten Commandments, okay? They're actually very interrelated. They have a lot to do with one another, and we're going to see that more in just a moment. But not only are they interrelated, but they all fall under the heading that that we read in our very first week on this series. God starts off these commandments by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, as, as theologians over centuries and centuries have thrown bugs at me. <laughs> Sorry, it's cool. If I kill the bug, is that, what do you guys think? Is that wrong? <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll let them live. Um, object lessons, object lessons. Okay. <laughs> So as theologians have thought about this command, these Ten Commandments over the years, they, we've kind of built two categories, right? Because we, we see that Jesus says the commandments can be summed up in, in love God and love your neighbor. And so we tend to think of like the first few as having to do with loving God and the back half having to do with, with loving our neighbor. And that's a very helpful categorization, but it's actually overly simplistic. Because murder isn't just wrong because it hurts other people. Although... It is wrong because it hurts other people, but that's not really the whole story. It's wrong because it's an act against God. It's an absolutely defiant act, unlike any other. The scriptural witness is very clear. God is the giver of life. He is the God over life. In the beginning, we see that He alone is the creator of all things. He, is, he alone is the one breathing the breath of life into humanity. Human breath and blood and life are all valuable because God says they're valuable. Not only that, but when God bestowed life on his creatures, he actually implanted within them his image. 
He created man and woman to be image bearers. They are to be priests to his creation, representatives of him to his world. They are living and breathing icons of who he is. None of us worked our way towards this, right? Is there anyone here who can raise their hand and say, yeah, I I had a hand in, in bringing about my own life? Our entrance into this world was unavoidable as far as we're concerned. God gave us life as a gift. And not only is that, is that initial giving of life a gift of God, but the continual sustaining of that life is a gift of God. The fact that any of us are going to take another breath in the next second and the second after that is a gift of God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that all things are sustained and held up by the power of God's word. Everything in all of creation, and especially human life, is sustained directly by God. Life begins by the will of God. Life continues by the will of God. Life should only end by the will of God. To kill another person is to end all possibilities for that life. It's to cut off all dreams, all chances of anything happening. Ending the existence of another person is an unbelievably weighty thing to do because it is to act like God. When we end someone else's life, we are basically taking on God's role. That's an unbelievable weighty thing to do. In in ancient times, the, the spilling of blood of another person was actually considered robbery. Robbery against God because God is the owner of that other person's life, that other person's blood. And for another human to step in and take it is nothing less than robbing God of his rights over life. But it isn't just that God is sovereign over life. It's not just that he gave it and sustains it and has rights over it, but he actually values it. He loves human beings and he loves their life. There's something in his character that actually helps us understand this commandment and why it's so important. On the one hand, we see God speaking of the concept of capital punishment. In Genesis chapter 9, as as Noah and his family are coming off the ark, God is kind of reconstituting human society and he tells them, If someone takes another person's life, then humanity can then take that person's life. That's the judgment. The basic idea is that human life is so incredibly valuable to God that the the, the one who took life now forfeits his or her own life. It's the ultimate punishment. And regardless of, of what you think about capital punishment being enacted by the state, there's something here that we have to think really, really clearly about and kind of dig down deep. Because even with this, this statement of capital punishment given by God, there's, there's a fuller picture of how important human life is to him. Revenge killing had been a part of human society since almost the very beginning. I mean, we see that when, when fratricide rips apart the first human family, when Cain kills Abel, there's, there's the assumption that, that retribu- re, uh, retributive killing could come against Cain. But what does God do? He doesn't actually carry out the revenge. He marks out Cain and says, if anyone touches this guy, they're dead. Right? God actually values human life so much that he calls up revenge short. As we look further in the scriptural witness, we find murderers in the strangest of places. Moses, the teacher, the prophet of Israel, was a murderer, and yet he was allowed to live. David, The greatest king that Israel ever saw was a murderer, and yet he was allowed to live. St. Paul, the guy that wrote a lot of our New Testament, was a murderer, and yet he was allowed to live. 
How does this sort of forgiveness match with, with that concept of, of lex talionis? You know, the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life? Didn't God say that somewhere in the Old Testament? It's interesting that that idea of retributive justice in the Old Testament is actually a limitation of violence, not an invitation to revenge. So many cultures in ancient times actually would, would enact the death penalty for all sorts of crimes, not just murder, but stealing and, and very minimal sorts of crimes. They would actually enact the death penalty. And so what God is doing for the ancient Israelites is giving them an idea that the punishment needs to fit the crime and not exceed it because human life is too valuable. And even with that idea of the punishment fitting the crime, we still see glaring examples like Moses and Paul and David where God's valuation of human life is such that he will not always respond to murder by taking the life of the murderer. But he still remains clear that life for life is the deserving punishment. But God is a God of life. He alone has the rights to give it, sustain it, and take it. Now, some of us are, are probably beginning to get a little bit twitchy because what we'd really like is a hard and fast rule, right? Like, murderers get the death penalty or, or life in prison or whatever it is, but we want it to be really clear every time in all cases. And, and I mean, how, how can we just say that, like, a, a mass murderer can, can maybe not get the death penalty? What are we saying here? We're just going to live in anarchy? At some point, forgiveness itself almost seems like a sin, right? When we're dealing with absolutely purely evil people. And those of us that are leaning in this direction are in good company because one of the greatest preachers to ever live felt the exact same way. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet who was called by God to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, to the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And he was to preach a message of destruction that was coming their way as punishment for their unthinkable violence towards the other nations. The Assyrians go down in history as some of the most inventively violent people in the entire world. I mean, the amount of blood that they have spilt is incalculable, and, and the ways in which they spilt it really don't even bear repeating. They were so unbelievably violent. And of course, what does Jonah do? He runs away. I mean, it's not, it's not hard to see why, right? Like, going into the capital city of a murderous nation to tell them that they're going to be judged is like having a death wish. But through a series of fishy events, Jonah is coerced into going. And he goes and he preaches this very short, very sweet, succinct sermon. And he preached it so convictingly that the entire city of Nineveh repents, from the king all the way down to the lowest servant. But this is when we find out that, that Jonah wasn't actually scared of the Ninevites, he was scared that God was going to make a colossal mistake. When the people repented, God heard their cries and he relented of the disaster that he was going to bring on them. I mean, think about it. We've got Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot living in the exact same neighborhood and God has their address. He could bomb them, he could shoot them, he could rip the breath right out of their lungs, and yet he doesn't. They repent and he forgives them. Now, Jonah has a sense of right and wrong. He's a good Israelite. And this was simply wrong, wrong, wrong. And Jonah burns with anger. He burns with anger. How could these people, these murderers, get a pass? How do they get a second chance? God asked Jonah, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah 
who's apparently a pretty bold guy, responds, yes, it is. In fact, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. God responds to Jonah by asking him if it's wrong for God to have concern over the lives of 120,000 people, 120,000 Ninevites. And we don't have Jonah's answer recorded for us because the end of that, that scriptural passage, is, it's very strange. It just cuts right off. But I think we can imagine what Jonah's answer would probably be, right? They are murderers. They deserve death, period. No second chances. Many of us, I think, have this instinct. Whether it's Scott Peterson, O.J. Simpson, Charles Manson, or Son of Sam, we have this sense that justice has got to be done. The poor and the weak can't just get trampled on. And when we read in the news, especially about younger ones that have been abused or murdered, our bodies clench up with anger, rightly so. We scream that justice has to be meted out, right? There's nothing wrong with that inclination. In fact, that response within us points towards the truth of this command. Human life is valuable, and the people that take it deserve to die. But here's the problem. The question isn't really about what murderers deserve, especially if you're a Christian. And unless, unless you're, you know, at like a, a very high governmental level making policies, then we, we might be able to talk about some exceptions. But for most of us here, if you're a part of the church, the question that should occupy your mind isn't, what do they deserve? The question that should occupy your mind is, as a Christian, is it my job to ensure that all people get what they deserve? Is that what Christians are called to do? To ensure that all people get what they deserve? And here, we have to be really careful. Please understand, I'm not advocating some sort of anarchy where, where crime and murder just go unpunished and you know, we all just kind of live in this utopia where anyone can do whatever they want and it becomes hell on earth very quickly. What I want us to see is how easy, how unbelievably easy it is for us to project this command back onto other people and scurry out of the heat of the spotlight that it places on us. And here's the reality. There is not a single person in this room who is not guilty, guilty, guilty of the most heinous murder ever committed. Jesus Christ is the one person, the one being that ever existed that not only didn't deserve murder, he didn't deserve death at all. Yet all of our attempts at self-justification, all of our murder, all of our rage, all of our anger, our hatred, our lust, our lies... All of our disregard for God, all of our idolatry, all of our schemes and attempts to placate God through our morality and piety when we don't even really want Him, all of that drove Christ to the cross. We were the ones crying out, crucify Him and release to us this murderer instead. So we see that there's a complex sense of balance that has to take place within us. On the one hand, it is so very right to feel enraged when the weak and powerless are trampled upon and murdered. It is right for us to cry out that justice be done on behalf of victims. Yet how quickly do we move out from that posture and move into a posture where we're pointing the finger at everyone else and saying, what about them, God? Why not them? 
And the answer that's going to come back to us every time is, why not you? Why don't you deserve the punishment? And the answer is always the same. The reason that Cain was marked out to live, the reason that Moses or David weren't executed, and the reason that none of us have been stripped of our lives through our complicity in the murder of God is because of that death. It's because of the death of Jesus that we are forgiven, that we have a second chance, that we have life. The death of Jesus was not just a death in our place. It was a death in the place of our enemies. Did you catch that? The death of Jesus is not just a death in our place. It's a death in the place of our enemies. So as we think about killing, whether it's retributive, whether it's through war, murder, manslaughter, starvation, or what have you, if we really believe, if we really believe that Jesus died in our place, then we have to believe that he died in the place of our enemies. Even Hitler. Even Osama bin Laden. And if you find that perhaps too hard to believe, then I would suggest that maybe you haven't really apprehended the truth. That at the core of humanity, what really unites us together is the fact that all of us were enemies of God. All of us. And look how he has treated us. Look how he has treated us, his enemies. We're here taking joy, singing praises to him because he has made us his children. So if you call yourself a Christian, if you identify as someone who was at enmity with God but who has been reconciled by Jesus, then you've got to see that that claim right there supersedes all other claims on your identity. Harboring anger and murderous hatred toward other people over national issues, ideological disagreements, or personal disagreements simply is off the table for Christians. Your greatest enemy has become your greatest friend at the greatest cost to himself. When we really let that sink down deeply into who we are, how can we go out and make enemies over lesser things? See, the death of Jesus is sort of like a black hole. It sucks all of the violence, all of the death and destruction and revenge and sin into itself, and they are never to be heard from again. The death of Jesus is incredibly life-giving. It gives life. And it's with this this very upside-down murder, this very backwards life-giving death in view that I'd like us to consider the true depths of this command as we look at the give or take. The, The question that this command is really wanting us to ask ourselves is with every breath that we take, every thought that we think, every word that we say, and every action that we do, are we giving life or are we taking life? With the teaching and example of Christ in view, we see that we're being called to a much, much more radical understanding of life-giving than our culture would suggest to us. As we saw in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus deepens our understanding that this command isn't just about physical acts of violence. It it includes more than just physical life. It includes our mental life and our verbal life. And the ways in which we think about other people, whether they're relatives or neighbors or strangers or enemies, we're either thinking life-giving sorts of thoughts or life-taking sorts of thoughts. And, And the things that we say, 
The things that we do to people every day throughout our lives, we're either giving life or we're taking it. This command interrelates to all the other commandments that, that come before it. Okay? As, as we think about the fact that we're called to worship God alone, we are reminded that God is not just a God of us. He's the God of all people, even our enemies. As we are taught that we shouldn't reduce God to an image and start worshiping an image, we're reminded implicitly that neither should we reduce other people to a caricature or a stereotype or simply an enemy that doesn't have any sort of complexity. As the third command reminds us that we should not use God's name in vain to call down judgment on others, we are reminded that our petty jealousies and our desires for revenge are so often not anywhere close to in line with God's desires for us. Even as we consider the Sabbath and and we're reminded that weekly rest is to be a part of our rhythms, it helps us from, from entering into a scarcity outlook, right, where we have to view everyone else as competition or an enemy Instead, we can look at them as neighbors in need. As we hear that we are to honor our parents, we are reminded that we are part of a universal family. We're part of a universal family. And there is no place for murder and strife within that human family as part of God's creation. You see, the idea of giving life is so much more than just refraining from violence. Giving life is is an open-handed posture towards others. It's costly. It requires us, first of all, to give up our demands for retribution when we've been wronged. Loving family can be hard. Loving strangers can be difficult. But loving enemies seems almost impossible. Now, unfortunately, we don't really have a lot of time to discuss all of the, the cases in which killing may or may not be okay. Okay, so... You know, I can't turn this into an ethics seminar all of a sudden. But I do want to just point out that we tend to look at a command like this and we immediately start asking, okay, well, what about self-defense, right? Or, or what if, you know, there's another world leader who's, who's entering the genocide and should our nation engage in a war then? Or what's just and what's unjust? Or, or what about manslaughter if it's an accident? We have all these different categories that we want to try and figure out where is this command going and, and how can we limit it? And The unfortunate thing is that what we do when we do that, not that it's not good to think about those things and to ask those questions, but but I think if we all paused for a second and really thought down deep, we'd all have to admit that really what we're doing is we're we're just trying to get out of the spotlight of having to actually give life to other people. Yeah, there's a place to be concerned about how these ethical questions work in our world, but for most of us, we're not really going to make those decisions. Most of us aren't fending off you know, people entering our house and trying to kill our families. Most of us are not making big worldwide decisions about genocide. We do have opportunities to give life. So that's what we should be spending our time doing. So as we circle back to what I said in the beginning, do you see how strange it is that we want this command to, to, to tell us to just refrain from killing in ways that we shouldn't? We all have our ideas about ways that we shouldn't kill, right? All of us. And to be honest, it's ludicrous how blind we are to our own inconsistencies. Allow me some, uh, what my friend Josh calls, glittering generalities, okay? Just quickly. Liberal liberal people, right, in America, liberal on the political perspective, uh, yeah, whatever, you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Those that are are often more liberal are often quick to condemn war. They're they're quick to um, protest against capital punishment, or police brutality. 
Those that are more on the conservative side of the spectrum will condemn abortion and euthanasia and the violence of the poor. And there's really a disgusting irony in the fact that that pro-choice people tend to set themselves up as God over life and death and yet condemn and protest against governments that do the exact same thing. You see the irony there? And there's an equally disgusting irony on the other side that so often people that would consider themselves pro-life on certain issues are are very quickly to just join in with a nationalistic cry for war. They're often pro-war and pro-life at the same time, and I don't understand how either of us can't see the other side. All of life is precious, and the greatest tragedy of it all is that in the American uh, courtyard of ideas, neither of those groups are overly interested in giving life. Why do protests against state-enacted capital punishment never begin by protesting against the murders that took place in the first place? Why, Why do we have marches against abortion instead of actually going out and giving life, actively giving life, to single mothers that are in need of encouragement. You see, this command doesn't just call on us to protest death and killing. It calls us to be actively, positively giving life. The most just war in history had one casualty. You ever think about how much time we spend discussing whether or not we can engage in a war if it's just or not? The most just war in history had one casualty— St. Peter drew his sword to protect the most innocent man to ever live from the most heinous crime ever committed. And he cut off the ear of his enemy. You know how that war ended? Jesus ended it by healing the very one who had come to arrest him and kill him. His lasting universal peace came through his own death, not the death of his enemies. Peter Kreef tells us that Jesus drained away war down himself like a sinkhole or a blotter. He made peace by making himself the universal victim, by suffering all the violence, war, aggression, hate, and harm that the father of lies and of violence could fling at him, by doing nothing in return, by being meek as the slaughtered sheep. He was the meek who shall inherit the earth, and by his weakness he won the world and the authority to give its rule over to his disciples when the time is ripe. Whether you're on the inside of Christianity or you're still on the outside asking questions, trying to figure out who Jesus is, I would invite you to consider that that our self-justification is as real a murder weapon as any bomb or any gun. Our self-justification is what tells us that we are better than our enemies, that we deserve life more than they do. The gospel tells us that none of us, none of us deserves life, and yet the offer of true life is given over to us as a gift in Jesus. If you've yet to experience that gift, I invite you to come and talk with me. Talk with one of our leaders so you can learn more about Jesus. If you're a part of his church already, I would invite you to consider once again the life that you have been given in Jesus, the freedom that you have been given in that life. I'd ask you to consider the fact that as a disciple of Christ, you have been called to give life and not take it. I'd also like us all to consider the fact that that task 
of giving life is infinitely greater and more difficult than we ever thought possible. It is only in the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to give life to others through words of encouragement, thoughts of goodwill and prayers, and through actions that improve the lives of others, even the lives of our enemies. In a moment, we're going to come to this table to feed on Jesus. And in doing so, we're coming to a place where war and murder and revenge have been done away with. And by feeding on Jesus, you are declaring that you are, you are an enemy that has been brought close. You're an enemy that has been made into a friend and that at the core of your identity, you are now one who goes about working for reconciliation in the world, even the reconciliation of your most murderous enemies. After all, that's what Jesus did for you, his most murderous enemy. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know if it's because we're afraid of true freedom or if we don't want to think about um, our role in your death, but we often don't consider the fact that we truly were your enemies and you have become our greatest friend, our greatest champion, our Savior. I ask that as we come to your table that we would consider what it cost you to turn us from enemies into friends and would we leave this place being willing to take that cost on ourselves to make family members that we may be feuding with or neighbors or strangers or enemies in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act toward them, would we be people that give life? Would we be people that are quick to speak of the life that is found only in you? We pray this in your name. Amen.